Hey, welcome to the show. This is Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. That would be WWE Hall of Famer, Mr. Briscoe, and I would be Bradshaw. And they ask about what do you miss most in the wrestling business? Everybody will tell you the car rides. Some of the greatest times that we had was riding between towns with great friends. And I had two of the best friends that any human being could ever have. That was Teddy Long and Ron Simmons. And Charles, the godfather right, ended up joining us most of the time. But Teddy's a good friend. He's a good man. He's joining us now. Teddy, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure and an honor it is to be with you. And, you know, finally, now I have got the opportunity and the chance to try and collect the rest of my money that has been owed to me by <laughs> you and Ron Simmons for the last 15 years. So I'm, I'm glad to be on here. I can get my money now. Mr. Well, Mr. I wouldn't would, would guarantee Mr. that Mr. there, player, because I tell you, I've been working with John now for like five, six months on this, and this is strictly for entertainment purposes only. The financial gains probably is over there on, on the other side of the screen there with Layfield because, you know, he's a financial genius. And I'm sure, uh, you know, during those road trips and everything, you you had exactly down to the tenth of a penny what what you owed him for for his company, right? Well, yes, I I got it down, and uh, I come to find out, you know, I don't understand why I haven't get got paid. And somebody told me said, well, it may be just one word with Bradshaw. The reason he probably hadn't paid you because it's privilege. <laughs> yeah, privilege. privilege. That's why every other black guy in the car paid their tolls except for you. We, we, Mr. Briscoe, you gotta understand. We would drive to a toll booth, and all of a sudden, Teddy Long would turn into Galileo. He'd start looking at the stars. He'd go to sleep. He'd go, "I got it, guys," and he go, uh, and he waits so long. There's cars behind us. They're honking their horn, and finally, we'd pay the toll. Teddy never paid a toll in about ten years. Well, I now, couldn't, Teddy, I couldn't Teddy. Find, y'all wouldn't give me time. I couldn't find my wallet. Y'all kept rushing <laughs> me through the toll. I was looking for my wallet, but y'all didn't have time. No, we ain't got time to wait on you to find it. You know I'm under the influence and my memory is bad, so I had to try <laughs> to look for my wallet. <laughs> In that car, you're under the influence. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> well, it's true. I want to tell you something. Ron Simmons and I almost had to check into a secondhand smoke clinic because we rode with Teddy Long and Charles Wright so long. <laughs> well, the only thing it did for you, John Blayfield, is made you hungry. That's why we had to keep pulling over getting you food. <laughs> Jerry, we would show we would show up at a Bob Evans. Those guys are going there and get chicken breasts and baked potatoes. Me and Ron be getting pies and cakes. But <laughs> just riding in the car with Teddy and Godfather. <laughs> Teddy, could that guy eat on the road or what, man? Uh, does he eat on the road uh, heavier? I mean, well, no, you know he he's done okay. He he'd eat a little bit bad, but he tried to keep his you know keep on his diet and keep his weight down. So he was pretty good about eating. But sometimes you know we all ate bad. Sometimes when you get the munchies, you got to just eat what's there. Keep his weight down. I went back and I looked at some of those uh, uh, that John Layfield uh, there. There was no keeping the weight. Down, maybe down or below his his, uh, his his belt line on his ass. That's where he kept it. But that, you know, <laughs> he was a big guy there. But I can imagine about an hour and a half into one of those trips, that the first uh, Bob Evans or the first twenty four hour Stuckies or Denny's that come up, that place was frequented. I bet you guys knew each stop along the highway. 
Oh, well, every, everywhere we stopped, we had been there before. So every time we walked in, you know, it was like at a Walmart. We had a greeter. Oh, you guys back again? <laughs> we say we stopped at some Walmart one time, and Charles Rock Godfather goes into the Walmart. He goes, I'll be right back. So some fan comes by, and he recognizes us in the car. And he says, hey, can I get an autograph? I said, of course, you can get an autograph if you will go in and announce the loudspeaker that the Godfather is in the store. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I'd be happy to. He's in the store? I said, yeah. So he goes in, and he announces on the loudspeaker, Godfather's in the store. And he, he is surrounded by 50 people. He can't figure out why. <laughs> Oh, it was, yeah, it was a big, fun. it was, it was a big rib. It was great. <laughs> and that's hey. one thing about Bradshaw. Anytime he could rib you, he'd rib you, brother. And you would never know when it's coming. Hey. You'd never know. Teddy, right. Teddy, look, you told at the Hall of Fame that you passed the sobriety test in Louisville, Kentucky by that redneck cop that stopped us. Now you, you had nothing to drink, nothing to smell, nothing. You was fine. Nothing. You Nothing. failed the sobriety test because that cop is going to arrest us. Don't you even <laughs> think about saying you passed it. Well, let me tell you something. I'm dead sober. I have no alcohol in me whatsoever. Might have had something else, but I was not <laughs> drunk. Now the police stops us, and the first thing Bradshaw says is, well, I'm the one drinking. And he looks over, and he's got about 15 empty beer cans right in front of him that he's drank out. The way we got the beer... It was on a Sunday. So we go in this gas station to get gas and the thing is locked. The case is locked. And so Bradshaw goes over to the girl. He says, hey, you want to make 50 bucks? She says, what? Well, open that, open that can, open that case up right there and give us a case of beer. I'll pay for the beer and I'll give you 50 bucks. And that's how we end up getting a case of beer. He paid about $70 for a case of beer. And then, and then, and then when we get stopped, the police pulls me over and he tells me to get out and take a sobriety test and I haven't drank anything. So he says, well, I smell alcohol. Well, the next thing I know, Ron Simmons is in the back seat. Next thing comes out of his mouth. Oh, so we got a bloodhound now. Okay. That's a, we got a bloodhound. Oh, I don't even look in the back seat because I don't even want the man to know I even heard that. So I just keep right on talking. He says, what did he say? I said, I have no idea. So I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't know what he said. So that pisses him off. So he pulls me out of the car and gives me a sobriety test. I'm sober and then gives me a ticket for two hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So and I'm yeah. sure they shared it with you. Well, you know, they were kind enough. They gave me a hundred bucks of it. So I ended up having to pay the one twenty five. They just <laughs> insisted not to do half. They just told me they was going to give me something. Teddy wasn't, Teddy wasn't speeding nothing. That cop <laughs> saw some guys he thought were suspects in the car, and he stopped us. That was the only reason he stopped us. So the, the guy wasn't far off either, John. When you said suspects, <laughs> so <laughs> I tell the cop because I don't, I don't want to. I'm gonna take the fall for Ron. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, hey, this, all this beer's mine. I'm the only one drinking. So Ron gets mad at me for wanting to take the fall for him. He rolls down the window and he goes, no, no, no. I'm drunk too. And that cop <laughs> looked at that huge man in the back seat and pulled off his gun. <laughs> and I altered his gun. I said, Ron, he's going to shoot you. Run. He goes, run up the window. <laughs> run. <laughs> like that window didn't stop that bullet. <laughs> yeah. Got Teddy outside. So when Teddy's outside taking the sobriety test, we think he's failing. He's doing all this stuff. You can't do that stuff. You know, two o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, late, whatever it was. Ron goes, I said, Ron, what are we going to do if they arrest Teddy? He, Ron says, last scene, 
large black and white male running into the woods. <laughs> I said, you, we're not running anywhere. Y'all wasn't able to run nowhere. <laughs> so we don't tell Teddy that we're going to help him pay for the ticket. We're supposed to go to Sofia where we're going. Teddy drives us to Lexington by mistake. He misses a turn. And we forget, and we end up getting like there like at five or six o'clock in the morning. It was, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Well, but we got there. And we went straight to work. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's just one story. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Hey, how about the time Jackie Moore drove you to Asheville, <laughs> wherever it was, Kentucky? She or drove it was. She drove me two hundred miles out of the way. We was on we was on our way to, to Richmond, Virginia, driving from Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, from Greensboro to, to Richmond is only maybe um, 150, you know, at the most, easy. So, Jack, I'm so tired, I can't, I'm just sleepy and tired. So, I said, Jackie Moore, I said, can you drive just a little bit? Just let me get just a little bit of sleep. She says, okay. So, I get a little nap. Then the next thing I know, I wake up and I'm like, where we at? Are you not there? And next thing I find out, she has drove 200 miles out of the way. Now I got there. I'm pissed off now, so I got to get back behind the wheel. So I drive back. I get in Richmond, Virginia at 7 a.m. in the morning, which would only took about an hour and a half drive. And the first people I see when I drive up is Bradshaw and Ron. I just dropped my head. I said, oh, right, here it comes. <laughs> we thought maybe he had gotten up early and gone to the gym. And I because me and Ron were up, we were about to go to the gym. And I, we said, Teddy, you go to the gym already? He goes, I'm just getting in. <laughs> oh my God. I slept all night. <laughs> they had driven all night. Yeah, all night. She done went 200 miles out the way. That's hard to do, drive through Richmond, Virginia, you know, up in that part of the country up there to miss a city like that. But I've got experience doing the same thing with my brother and I and Roddy Piper. I mean, uh, we missed a few uh, exit turns ourselves, you know. So uh, I, I feel you, brother. I feel where you're coming from. And uh, and well, then to run into those two demons that you ran into, Bradshaw and Layfield, when, when you're tired, you're, you're, you don't want any bullshit. You don't want any of that stuff. And you know that you're going to get it. Soon as soon as I saw them, I dropped my head. I'm like, oh no, here it comes. <laughs> One time, Jerry, we we're in a three man, three team tag match or something. It was the Hardys and uh, Edge and Christian. You know, they're new at the company. They just came in. You know, they want to do everything in the world. Me and Ron, <laughs> it's a one o'clock show. We hadn't been to bed very long. So I'm sitting there talking to Ron in the corner, and, and I'd forgotten completely about the match. So Teddy comes over to us. He's a referee. He goes, at any point, are you two going to join this match? <laughs> Ron, 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 he looks and like they and, and they looked right at me and told me no. <laughs> oh, so I got to turn around now and go back over to the other guys. I said, I don't know what to tell you. They say they're not going to tag. <laughs> <laughs> I just asked them. They're sitting on there. They're standing on the apron, Jerry, and they're just having their own conversation. We got a wrestling match going on. So well, they were enjoying the show, man. They were yeah, enjoying so I the walk show. Over to him. I walk over to him. I said, hey, do y'all understand that there's a match in the ring? Do y'all plan on get joining this match at any time? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a good match, Jerry. I mean, it was, it was a good match. We, we, yeah, it was a good match because they wasn't in it. 
They won. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Teddy, Teddy, being a referee like that, you know, in situations like that, I mean, you you got to really, uh, you know, that's where a lot of people really don't uh, give the referees a lot of credit. You know, there's there's a lot of dysfunction going on in that ring at the same time, especially when you got somebody like Layfield and Simmons. We were going to do what the hell they want to do, you know. And you got you got three young uh, uh, studs over in the other corner, jumping around, getting ready, want to be a star time. And here you are stuck in the middle, trying to relay messages back and forth. And and you walk over, no. What do you do, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, well, I just went right back and told those guys they're not getting in. They're not coming in. So I don't know what to tell y'all. <laughs> right, right. One time we were a matchup in those tent cities. Remember we used to run those tent cities, Jerry, up in Massachusetts, you know, Hyannis and uh, down the Cape uh, and stuff. Cape, uh, uh, Cape Cod. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, Terry Taylor. Boxworth and all that stuff, yeah. Terry Taylor was the agent. He was kind of, I think, trying to need Who? Him. Terry Taylor, you know who I'm talking about. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first time in uh, like six months that name has ever been mentioned on this show. I'm probably <laughs> You'll yeah. probably get sued for mentioning your name. And, I, and I'm like, Terry Taylor who? <laughs> <laughs> so Taylor wants to kind of get, get to me and Ron a little bit, I think. You know, he, so he says, uh, how about we just beat you guys first? We're in some like the three-team or four-team tag. And I said, I got an idea. You want to really pop the people? How about I come out and gang grill? DDTs me as I'm climbing through the ropes. And Terry goes, that's a great idea. Ron puts on not even his knee pads. He puts on his tights. He's still got his watch on. No wrist pants. <laughs> he walks down the aisle. And the only guy on is his tights and his boots not laced. Ron walks down the aisle. I stick my head through the ropes and get DDT'd. I roll right back out. Ron and I left. And we're in the next town by the time the match was over. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, 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 you brought up something, John there. So excuse me, Ted, but John brought up something I've always been curious about. Ron Simmons wore a watch to the ring more than anybody I've ever known. I mean, we've all done it here and there. We've all forgotten to take off. But was was that a was that a gimmick with Ron? He just wanted to know what time it was, or he he he, he liked that watch, I guess. Well, no, he he wore that watch because he wanted to make sure him and John didn't put in too much time. That's exactly <laughs> what that watch was. I get it. Yeah, because he looked over at that watch and he tell John, well, hey, it's already five minutes in. I think we need to be going home now. Hey, <laughs> 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 well, Teddy, you started, uh, you first got started. I was watching some stuff with you and uh, Kevin Sullivan, I think is on Hannibal TV or something. Really good interview, but I didn't realize that you, one of the reasons you got in the business because you were a DJ and you ended up DJing for Kevin Sullivan and Eddie Gilbert driving down the road, and they realized, hey, this guy's not not only a smart guy, this guy can talk. But I want to ask you first about Alabama. You grew up in Alabama during the Bull Connor days, uh, during the, the March to Selma with Dr. King. Right. What was that like growing up in Alabama? I mean, I mean that was some of America's best and worst history combined during that time. What was that like in Alabama? Well, you know, it's pretty rough uh, back there. Uh, one time, you know, when they uh, bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church and uh, killed those little girls, well, I was like a block away from that. And that happened on uh, the same day as my birthday, September the 15th. And I heard that bomb just as loud as it could. I mean, the car that I was in, it shook everything. Had no idea what was going on, but I was a block away from that bombing. 
So that was pretty rough. And I mean, at the time I was a disc jockey at the WENN radio station in Birmingham. And one night we went to a little town called Leeds, Alabama. And what they used to have back in the day, you know, you could it's, it's like a meet and greet that we do now that the disc jockeys would go to these little clubs and they would have things they call platter parties. And they people would pay money to come in and dance. You know, it's like it, it was it was like Soul Train, but we didn't even know know nothing about Soul Train. So people would pay to come in and dance, and the DJ would supply the music. And plus, they had a chance to see the DJ, a guy that's on radio. You know, you never did see him. So we would go there, you know, and have platter parties, you know, and you know where the people could pay to come in and everything. So we would do that stuff. So that was good. And then, so finally. You know, after I got in, you, you, one night we was coming back from this town in Leeds, Alabama. And I think that was the night that they had bombed the A.G. Gaston Motel. It was a motel there. And that motel was where Dr. King always stayed when he came to Birmingham. Well, they knew he was there and they bombed that motel. And then we were on our way back into Birmingham and we run right into all the all the race, all the riding and all that stuff. And I mean, back then. People had big bricks in 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 tubs. They would go get a big tub and they would put bricks and rocks in them so they could throw and break shit. So then they stopped us that night as we were coming back and they pulled us out of the car. Police pulled me out of the car, put me in jail. They locked us all up, put us in jail that night for no reason, just because we were, you know, in the ride. So they pulled all of us out of the car and we went to jail. And then the next, they didn't let me out of jail the next day. They would wait. They held us in jail for three days. And that's what you could do back then. It was like a 72-hour observation to see if you was wanted or what. But they knew we weren't wanted. But they held us three days in jail before they would even let us out. And then they wouldn't let us out until the man at the radio station would come down and identify us and let them know that we did work at that radio station in Birmingham. And that's the only way we got out of jail. Wow. So they never charged you with anything. They just never charged us with anything. They just locked us up and put us in jail just for being out there. What was you know you know that said like John said that was a dark age in our country's history. You know, and uh, traveling, I used to, you know, I started working in the Carolinas in seventies. You know, guys like Luther Lindsay, you know, who had been coming up through the fifties. You know, one of you know really dark ages, and Thunderbolt Patterson tag team with those guys. I'd ride the road there in Carolina with them. It had to be so intimidating. You'd come into a town like Welcome to North Wilkesboro, home of the KKK, and you knew right then, you know, this wasn't going to be a friendly night. <laughs> well, and you talk about, uh, Jerry, let me mention this too. You know, you talk about Thunderbolt Patterson, and you know me, I'm just going to be straight up and tell the truth. Well, you know, a lot of people thought that Thunderbolt Patterson, by him being the black guy, you know, he would, you know, kind of stand up for, you know, for the black wrestlers. Well, that wasn't true. He didn't care about us either. He was all about himself because one <laughs> night, one day that we had a meeting, it was me, Thunderbolt Patterson and Ole Anderson. And Ole was the grand wizard. He would call you the N-word even if he knew your name. He didn't give a shit. Just so the next... Okay. So the next thing we did, oh, we went and had this meeting. So Ole says to Thunderbolt, he says, hey, Thunderbolt, he says, how many niggas you think we need on the card? And Thunderbolt looked over at him and looked at me and he told Ole, he said, well, boss, I'm going to be the only nigger on the card. <laughs> wow. That's a true wow. story. A true story. Wow. Yeah. During, during that time there in Alabama, um, Dr. King, you know, he had in Rosa Parks. What was the sentiment like 
for say in the black community, the white community about Dr. King. I mean, he was doing incredible stuff, but you had this horrible person on the other side, Bull Connor, uh, who was doing his terrible stuff. Uh, well, well, if you want to know the truth, we got some Bull Connors right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. There's some Bull Connors out there right now. So like I said, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. You know, you kind of knew, you know, your place in Birmingham, Alabama, you knew at a certain time after, after dark, you didn't want to be on the street. You didn't want that problem. So in Alabama, it was just like living. It was it was modern day slavery. So if you didn't know your place, then you would get locked up or get put in jail. I remember one time, John, I got stopped. I was I was I was I was, I was about 18, 19 years old. I got stopped one night. They pulled me over and they put me upside the wall, shook me, and put my hands up. And the guy asked me, he said, why did you have your hands in your pocket? And I said, because my hands were cold. And the police said to me, he said, well, what would you rather have, cold hands or a hole in your head? Wow. I said, wow. and I swear to God, man, that's true. And I, I must have just liked something from God because I didn't answer. Just the words came out of my mouth. I said, cold hands. And they, huh. and they, let, me, they let me go. Huh. And during wow. that time, you also got to meet, uh, what I saw, I, didn't never, I never heard this. I really also James Brown, right? Well, by me being the disc jack on a radio station, at that time, James Brown, you know, he was pretty hot. So James Brown came. I was working at WOKJ and Jack no WNN in Birmingham. And James Brown came to Birmingham for a concert. And I just happened to meet him there. So by the, me and him start talking. So I would get in the car with James and and I, we, there was a club that James used to play in Birmingham. It was called The Last Chance. <laughs> that was the name of the club. And I got in the car and rode with James to the club. He would let me ride with him and stuff. And so I rode to the club with him. And then me and him got to talking and got kind of tight. I even had a chance to meet his son before his son died. And James Brown started buying radio stations. And when he started buying radio stations, he the next time I saw him was at WOKJ. I was in Jackson, Mississippi. And James Brown offered me a job at one of his radio stations in Augusta, Georgia. Well, I didn't take that job because I was doing all right in Mississippi. So I stayed there at WOKJ and that's how I met James. But then after that, I had a chance to run into James again. And he had a, a TV show in Atlanta called Future Shock. It was like a dance show, like Soul Train. And I saw James again and he gave me a job as the music director. And what I did is select the music for the people to dance by. And it was at the old TBS studios is where they used to do it. And that's how I got involved with wrestling, because after James Brown would get through taping, then the guys would come in, bring the ring up and set up, you know, for WCW, for NWA wrestling. And so I started hanging around with that, going down to the TV station to watch the wrestling. And I run into Abdullah and Abdullah had just come to town and he didn't have nobody to show him around. And he wanted, you know, to find his way and go to the different clubs and stuff. He liked to party. So he would come and pick me up and I would take him to clubs and stuff where he could hang out and party. And then on Saturday mornings, he would come and get me and I would ride down to TBS to the studio with him. And that's how I was able to get in the back with the guys. Because back then, you know, K-Fave meant something then. They didn't play about that back then. You didn't get back there if you didn't know nobody. And so I started getting back to behind the scenes. I would go out to the ring and get jackets. I kind of made myself busy, you know, because I was standing around. Everybody's looking at me like, you know, what, what are you doing back here? So I started getting jackets, emptying garbage cans, you know, any little thing I could do to make myself busy. So they kind of left me alone after I started getting jackets. And then one day the, the position came open where they needed somebody to put the ring up and take the ring down. 
Well, Louise Manning was a promoter there, and she knew that I'd been hanging around because everybody that got a job back then, it, it was in-house. Either you had to be smart or you had to know somebody, you didn't get no job. So by me hanging around, they was trust me and everything. And so I got the job putting up the ring, taking the ring down. And then one night we had a show in Cobb Civic Center at the at, at Marietta. I took the ring, put the ring up, and by the showtime, they had no referee. So Louise Manning sent out to the varsity, got me a referee shirt. She, they brought it back. She says, Teddy Long, you go after a referee tonight. I said, well, I don't know anything about that. I can't. She said, oh, don't worry about it. So the guys will talk to you. They'll take care of you. Well, the first two I had was Black Bart, Ron Bass <laughs> in a Texas death match. Oh, my God. Wow. That was the first match I had, and they brothers started bleeding all over the place. They scared me so bad till I jumped out of the ring and left them. <laughs> you just walked the ring. I, jumped, I jumped out and left them with Charlie McGowan. God rest his soul. He was the right yeah. ring and fell. Well, Charlie was screaming, come back here. Where are you going? Get back in the ring. Get back in the ring. So I so I finally ended up getting back in the ring, and I could hear Black, I heard Ron Bass tell Black Bart says, hey, that stupid referee he just left us. Now he's right back in here. I said, God damn it, did you see what he did? And they were so busy talking about me. Then they started back to wrestling. And the way I escaped that is Charlie McGowan rang the bell too quick. He screwed up the finish. And they got so mad at him till they forgot about me. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, Black Bart, I, I love Bart, by the way. I oh, me too. Bart. Me too. I dude. love him. And he used to tell the referee, he's pulling my heart. He's pulling my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> when did you meet? Did you meet Kevin Sullivan first or Dusty first? I met Kevin Sullivan first. After, I, after you know, I got the job refereeing, you know, then I started, you know, riding with, well, I started riding with Tommy Young first. And then I got, God knows I just had to get away from him. Boy, I'm telling you, <laughs> wow. that was too much. So I ended up meeting, I ended up meeting Kevin and Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. And so after I met them and started hanging with them, so they said, come on, Kevin, come on, brother, you can ride with us. So I started riding with them. And uh, and we uh, every night we leave the show, we'd get a case of beer. So one night we got the case of beer and we start drinking. And so I told him, I said, yeah, guys, you know, I used to be a disc jock on a radio station. So, you know, Kevin, ah, come on, brother, DJ for us. So I start turning the radio down, disc jocking for him. And I thought that I was entertaining them, but they saw something else. They said, like, this, this guy can talk. So that's how I ended up getting in managing. They went back and they told the, told Jim Ross, and I think Flair was in charge then about I could talk. And it was something Flair didn't want to do. He hated it. But finally, you know, I guess they convinced him to do it. And so that's how I started managing. Why did Flair hate it? Did you ever find out why Flair didn't like it? Well, he didn't like me. A <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that a, was why. Did he not like you as a manager or did he just not like you? He just didn't like me, period. I, I, You know what? And I can tell you a true story. And Gary Hart, God rest his soul, Gary Hart looked out for me. Gary Hart knew that how he hated, how Flair hated me. And Gary Hart made me a blade. This was, this was my right hand to God. I have no reason to lie. He made a blade for me and he gave it to me. And he said to me, he said, if he keeps on bothering you, said you take this blade and you cut his goddamn throat. Those were the words out of his mouth from Gary Hart. I, tell I you, love Steve, Gary Hart. Gary I've Hart, you're Gary right. Hart Gary Hart stood up for so many guys. It was unbelievable back in those days. But Gary, 
Gary was so so in tune, you know, being that Chicago guy that he was. Gary Gary just was a very caring soul, and he did he didn't like anybody taking advantage of anybody, no matter what position the guys were. He he would he would stand up for the rights, and that's something that Gary Hart, you know, he so underplayed in a lot of categories. But Gary was a man's man. He was a, he was afraid of everybody. And I tell you, another guy that looked out for me too, God rest his soul, was Steve Doctor Dev Williams. He was another guy. He didn't have. He hated Flair, and he told me he said if he keeps on bothering you, he said you let me know. Wow, I've seen Gary Hart's blade before. It was he called it, he called it Sweet Lucy. Yeah, well, he made made one for me, and he put it in like a little thing. I don't know what it was, but you could put the top on it, and you never would know it was a blade in there. And you could take yep. the top off, and he had a blade, right? He made that and gave it to me. Gary had it uh, in the bottom bottom of a cigarette dispenser, cigarette, cigarette pack. And and it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, he had that blade. It's Sweet Lucy called it. I never saw him use it. I, I heard him talk about it a couple of times because it was famous. And he had a promoter in San Antonio one time. It wasn't Joe Blanche. It was somebody else. And he and Al Madrill, the boys got stiffed, and Gary said he's gonna have to visit with Sweet Lucy. Gary went <laughs> in there, pulled that blade on him, and the the guy ended up paying every one of the boys. Gary just didn't get his money for him and Al Madrill. Gary was a good dude. Hey. Gary had money, got paid for all the boys that night. But he, Brad, y'all, Brad, y'all, let me tell you, that same thing happened to me. We was in Birmingham, Alabama. It was me, Gary Hart. We did a show for Mike Jackson and some indie guy that was running. And when the show was over. The guy didn't want to pay us. And that's what Gary did. Gary got that blade and he went in there. And when he come out, the guy not only paid paid Gary, he paid everybody. Everybody got <laughs> their money that night. That's the same that same thing happened with me that night in Bremen with Gary. Gary got all our money. Yeah. Gary's one of the best guys there was, but uh, he, he, yeah. he, he and, wouldn't and, take you st- sniffing the boys ever. And, no. And one thing about Gary, he was so smart. So he yeah. could walk out of that locker room and he could look around that arena and he could tell you in maybe one second how many people were in there. Right off the top of his head. <laughs> I was so fortunate in the beginning of my career was in Australia. And uh, and I uh, Gary Hart was there at the same time I was there. And uh, Jim Barnett, of course, loved Gary because Gary did so much for the business. You know, Gary, Gary was so bright in booking. Gary was so bright in finishes. Gary was so bright and picking out talent that could move up and, uh, you know, who to work with and everything. So Barnett just loved him. So I was a uh, Stone Cold rookie there and, uh, and I was working to deal with Curtis Ikea, King Curtis. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, of course I didn't, I didn't, I barely knew what juice was, let alone how to get it. And so, uh, Barnett come up to me and say, hey, we want to do a big angle with you. Uh, they had a, an announcer, Lord Athel Layton, or whatever his name was, and you're going to Layton's going to say, uh, save you. Uh, Curtis is going to beat you up, and Lewin's going to jump in and 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 join in, and then uh, the announcer is going to jump in, which was Lord Layton, and we're going to come back in a tag team with with you and Layton and and uh, Mark and uh, and uh, and King. And I said, great. I don't know how to, he said, go talk to Gary Hart. Now, this is uh, Jim Barnett telling me that. Go talk to Gary Hart. So I go over to Gary. I said, Gary, they want me to get juice. I don't know how to make a blade. I don't want, he said, come here, kid. 
he walked over and he got Miss Lucy out of here and he said, well, we could go this way or we can go a different way. And I saw that this way and I said, let's go that other way. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, uh, he made me one that was, you know, just a uh, junior or junior of the one that he normally uses. So uh, Barnett comes to me, he said, uh, have you got a blade? And he said, yeah, let me see it. And I said, well, Gary made it for me. And he just turned around and took off walking about two minutes later. Barnett came back to me and he said, well, I can't have you doing that. He said, the TV station won't get, get yeah, let me get by with getting color on live TV. So Gary saved me from my first blade job by just the reputation. Of it. And, and Bradshaw, I, you know, let me say this, you know, and I've told Jerry this before, but, but John, you may not know this, but when I first started in uh, WWF, when then I first got there, and I never will forget, and I also told Jerry, and God knows I love him to death today for this, he pulled me to the side and he told me, he said, Teddy Long, he said, the old man likes you. He loves you. said, don't fuck this up, okay? And I, and I said, don't you worry. And I never will forget that because every time I'd always think what Jerry told me. I said, oh, shit, and I can't fuck this up. Let me do the right thing. <laughs> but uh, I always thought about that, and I think that's what kept me there, my longevity. Well, Vince, Vince you, he, just, he loved your versatility. He loved your hustle, and he, he loved your, your ambition for the business, and uh, that more than anything else. But, you know, Teddy, you came with the, with the reputation. You know? <laughs> so, I, just, I just wanted to tell you as a brother, you know, Teddy, you got an opportunity in the world, man. Just don't fuck it up. You know? And I and I never did. I never forgot yeah. that either. And I remember you thanking me over and over again. Every time, every time you get that paycheck, you'd come with a big old grant to thank you, Mr. Briscoe. <laughs> <laughs> but you and I used to have some really good talks about, about, about the world, not just a business, but you know how to how to how to handle yourself in, in that culture, you know. And, uh, right. and man, you were a fast learner, Teddy. <laughs> well, I, I I knew I had to learn. If I didn't, I wasn't gonna make it. <laughs> Teddy, come on, making it when when you that match you had where you turned heel as a referee, and going way back, the first time you got really big heat, and it was because of Kevin Sullivan sticking up for you, wanting you to do it, and turn you as a heel manager. You turned on the Road Warriors, who just didn't get beat back then in New Orleans, and you yes. were the hottest heel freaking in the South. Did you know at the time how big that was going to end up becoming? No, not at all. I did. I would be honest with you, I had not a clue what I was even doing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You end up hitting the fast count on the road wars. Oh, well, yeah, I did. I did the fast one, two, three. But, you know, everything is done for a reason. And everything now is about business. I had no idea what I was doing was for a reason. I had no idea what I was doing. It was about business because nobody would tell me nothing. I had to learn everything on my own. So as I continued to stay, I started to learn. I learned more. I'm like, oh, I got it now. I'll tell you another thing, too. When I first started refereeing, Dusty Rose, me and Dusty got along. Dusty gave me my first job. God rest his soul. Well, Dusty would come and get me, and he would bring me into the production meetings. Or either I would go get a bunch of coffee and, and tea for the guys to drink. And so when I would bring that tray in the production meeting for everybody to the coffee, Dusty would make me stay in there. He said, no, you stand right over there. Stand over there, baby. So I'm like, why am I standing in here? And I'm scared to death, okay? Because I don't know what reason I'm in there and they're talking all this stuff, stuff that I know I ain't supposed to hear. 
So I never did put that together. So finally, as I stayed around and I learned, then it hit me. I said, now I got this. I know, understand why Dusty brought me in here so I could learn. But they never told me. But but I picked up yeah. on it because I after I started to oh I said oh I got this. Dusty told me this. He made me learn this. So that's how I, I come to learn on my own. Jerry, you'll you'll acknowledge this. That, that was an old school way of learning. You know, I kind of broke in that way too. You know, the guys would take you under the wing, but they wouldn't sit you down and say, okay, here's how here's the business and explain it to you. They would let you listen to the business and learn that way, which is what Dusty was doing, which is an awesome and I, story. And, and I, I had no idea what he was doing. But as I continued to work in the business, it would all come back to me. I'm like, God, thank you, Dusty. I got this now. I understand what you were doing. I got it. <laughs> that, that's so the big thing about our him. business. And I think that's the reason, you know, a lot of, a lot of the old timers were so thorough and so protective of the business is because nobody got in the easy way i mean nobody i don't care if you're you know your dad or your brother your uncle your mother or who nobody really got in the easy way you might have got in the business the easy way but you didn't get in that dressing room uh, atmosphere that, that that fraternity the easy way you had to learn your way in there and nobody was offering advice to you unless you were a good guy and you showed that potential of doing it and each time that you help somebody like dusty Dusty looked at you and he probably listened to you, probably observed you for several weeks and saw your 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 ambition and your 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 lust for the business there. Hey, this guy would make me a, a good guy to be be on my side. And and they yep. teach you those little things, and they're so subtle the way they do it. And there was a reason that for that being so subtle, because down the line, all of a sudden, you're in this position, and you recall what those guys have told you. But it wasn't an easy job for anybody to get no. into business, let no. alone a referee or, or you know, a, a manager or, or a mouthpiece. Those you know, those people were kind of looked at. They weren't even into business at that time. You know, they were just props. Yeah, exactly. You. One thing you talk about being hard in the business. I saw an interview with Kevin Sullivan. It was with you, Teddy, and he was talking about, uh, I guess, Hero Matsuda training Ron. I, I think I've got that right. Matsuda was trained by Carl Gotts about how hard it was breaking guys in the business, and they just tortured guys back then. Thank God Brad Rangans worked us very hard, but not, not like that. And he said Ron Simmons was the only guy that wouldn't tap out to the training. Said he would do the 500 squats, he'd do the 200 push ups, whatever it was. He'd do all stuff. And Kevin Sullivan said, We go down there and watch, we go, This guy's a man. <laughs> a freaking <laughs> man. Yeah. John, John, at that time, Ron was breaking in. And uh, Ron always said, You know, Ron was, you know, the ball player in, in the state of Florida. So there was a sports editor by the name of Tom McEwen here in town that actually got Paul Orndorff in, in the business too, along with. Lex, Lex, and a couple other football players that we had no no way of, of getting in touch with. But uh, Tom, being the uh, the sports editor of a major newspaper here, but he he told Eddie about Ron Simmons. So of course, the first thing they do is take him down to Matsuda's place, and Matsuda's gym was actually a block and a half away from the body shop. Sometimes we'd be out there and all that noise, the hammering and grinding and all that. You'd, you'd be hear guys screaming and hollering from that block and a half away. I'd look over Jack and well, he rode busy again. So I'd walk over there and I, I'd see uh, Ron and got up, but Ron would be in there and uh, all these guys bending over, huffing and puffing and hurting, moaning and groaning. Ron was shaking it off like, come on, what's next? You know, I've never seen a guy 
take to the business like Ron did. And uh, but Ron wasn't a hero. Hero was smart. He didn't abuse people that he knew that could kick his ass. So he knew Ron <laughs> would kick his ass at any moment at any time. So so Hero kind of backed off on him. But more like guys like Luger and those guys like that. He punished those guys, even Hogan, you know, Hogan. Right. But yeah, uh, Matt Suda was, was phenomenal. And, uh, and, but there, he, there were no pushing around Ron Simmons at that time. Right. Well, like you said, he's the man. <laughs> he, is, he is the man. The term, yeah. The term unfuckwithable came about. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's the greatest quote <laughs> in the business right there. Oh, when did you first meet Ron, Teddy? Uh, when he first came from Florida and they brought him into NWA, I was refereeing then. And I first met him right there when he come up from Florida. And what was the idea of putting, I know you had the skyscrapers first. Uh, you had the Undertaker, you had Dan Spivey, Sid Vicious, or Sid Justice, you know, whatever you want to call him. Uh, then you had Doom. What was the idea of putting Butch and Ron together? Well, the, the whole thing was uh, Nancy uh, Benoit, God rest her soul. She was managing Butch and Ron, and they had the mask on. And um, uh, they called them, they wasn't doomed. It was the Ebony Express or something like that. I'm, I think that was the name. Well, anyway, after Nancy started managing them, and then when Kevin and those guys found out that I could talk and everything, and they decided to put me in the manager's role, then that's how I ended up with them. So I come out and I got them from Nancy. And then when I got them, then they was already, you know, Butch Reed was already aligned with Ron. And so when I got him, we took the hoods off of him. And then that's when we started calling them Doom. But that's how I ended up with them because they took them from Nancy Benoit and then I started managing them. That to me was one of the greatest teams of all time. And you had the Road Warriors in that era who lasted a really long time, who were just as popular as they could be. But then you had these guys, the first guys that could match up with the Road Warriors and maybe even outmatch them, you know. The, the, yeah. Yeah, from October of I think it's '89 to March of '91, that was Doom's run. It was only it was only about a year and a half. They were such well, a great they were such a great team. Why did it not go longer? Well, I don't know. Well, you know, this is another story. You know what I mean? And like I said, I don't know. But I remember one night we was in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and uh, Jim Hurd was the guy that was in charge. And what happened there when we got there? <laughs> I guess that Butch and Ron was doing so good, you know, as a tag team, you know what I mean? Had all the heat and everything till they decided to break them up. Okay. Now, why they wanted to do that, I don't know. But when we get to St. Louis, and Ron will tell you this story, we get to St. Louis, we get there, and the Jim Hurd comes and tells us, he says, well, we're going to break, you know, Flair wants to break you guys up. Said, we're going to have you guys wrestle Flair. And Flair wanted... To Flair was supposed to wrestle that night for the world title against Sting, and Sting wouldn't drop the belt to him. So he got pissed off because Sting wouldn't drop the belt, and then he said he was going to get somebody, and then he was going to take our stuff. So he wanted to, he got somebody to tag with him, then he was going to beat Butch and Ron, and we're going to take our belt that night for no reason at all. So Ron got up and said, no, we're not doing it. And when Ron said that, then I said, well, I'm with Ron. Oh, we're not doing it. So we got up and left. Butch Reed was the only person that didn't, you know, go along with it. He stayed there, but I guess, you know, that's old school. But after me and Ron didn't do it, then I think that's where I got my heat with Flair and all, and, and probably some more. Yeah, I didn't want to do that. And so that was the heat probably with uh, Doom to not keep those guys together because – Right. I, I well, they kept, trying, they, kept trying to break us, they kept trying to break us up for no reason. <laughs> 
for no apparent reason whatsoever. There was no story, nothing to take the titles from us at all. They just wanted to take them. No reason. I think the reason was those two guys uh, were so damn intimidating that uh, I think guys were actually afraid to go into the ring with them, even though they were both as professional as can be and two of the best performers ever, workers ever, to, to step in the ring. But the look of those two guys, Doom, I mean, the name and uh, the name fit the bodies and the name fit the dispositions of these guys. Well, and brother, if there was a doom looking at you, you were scared, man. Well, I'll be straight up with you now. If you had, if you cause any problems in there, those guys would beat your ass. Now I'm gonna tell you that no. right now. I've seen that happen. I, I've seen it happen too. I was Hey, <laughs> <laughs> tell you how 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 much heat did you guys have during that time? How great was? I mean, that to me, there's a picture of, somewhere on the internet of you sitting there with those two guys. It is possibly the most intimidating picture. I've seen the pictures of the Road Warriors. No disrespect to, to Joe and Mike. Love those guys. But that was the most intimidating picture I've ever seen of wrestlers anywhere. They were freaking awesome, especially awesome looking. How was that being out there with those guys? Oh, it was absolutely great. And you know me, I'm just having a ball. You know, my little self, all I can do is talk, and they would bag it up. You know, I'd talk all the shit, and they'd bag it. They'd get right in the ring and bag it up. And I never will forget, I, one night we was in the Omni in Atlanta <laughs> and we was coming back and this lady stopped us and she said, well, I don't like Butch Reed and Ron Simmons, but I love Teddy Long because he be talking <laughs> that shit. <laughs> so that, that's how I was back there. But everybody, you know, that, and I never will forget, Mr. Barnett told us one time, Mr. Barnett came to me and told me this. He said, Teddy Long. The only reason that we put the tag team belts on you guys is because the NAACP kept calling, wanting to know why we didn't have any black tag team champions. Now, that's a true story. That's how we end up getting the belt. Now, Mr. Barnett told me that. I believe that, too, with Jim. Yep. Is it a true story that Butch Reed got my first night in the business in the Dallas, Texas? I ended up going out with Butch Reed. That, that night lasted about three weeks. <laughs> so yeah, well. Is it true Butch Reed rode a horse into a bar one time? It was Rufus R. Jones's bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. He went home and got a horse and came back with it, rode it all the way from his house back up and went right into Rufus's bar with it. Why did he do that? Who you tell me? Yeah, why, Jock? I can ask you the same question. Why'd you do that? <laughs> yeah, you tell me why you done that. I have no idea. <laughs> hey, how about the time you left Ron Simmons on the side of the road in Massachusetts in a snowstorm? No, we we we. You remember we was come from Rochester, New York. We stopped. We we worked there, and we was on our way to Albany, and. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, you know, you know, we're drinking, so we don't got the beer and we got it all in us. So, you know, when you're drinking beer, you know, you got to piss. So, you know, everybody wanted to pee. So I finally pull over and, you know, John, he's always on me. It, I mean, it, he never let up off me at all. Pull the car over. What's wrong with you? Don't you see people got to piss? Pull it over. <laughs> so, so everybody got out. So everybody pissed. And so I got out pissed. So I got back in. So. I'm thinking everybody's in. So I, they, I got in, slammed the door. So I drove on off. Next thing I know, John looks over at me. What are you doing, idiot? I said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm going on to the town. You idiot. You just left Ron standing in the snow back there. I'm like, what? He's not in the truck? 
So now I got to bag up at least a mile on, yeah. the, on the median because I can't get off nowhere. So I had to bag up about a mile. So when I Ooh. finally bag up and get back there to him, he's standing there and he's full of snow. And this is before the word damn ever come out. I We bag up and I open the door and he looks at me and he says the same with damn long, just like that. And that was before he even started saying damn. <laughs> it was nighttime, Teddy, in your defense, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you missed the biggest person in the car. When, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, then Ron, and then John, you know him, he don't make it no better. Ron gets in the car, he's full of snow. Then John, now he's on me all night. Well, see, look what you did. Look what you did. Look at Ron. Look, get, look at him. You got him all covered. <laughs> he just blamed it all. I can't say a word because, you know, I done left the man. <laughs> Ron, by the time we get back to him, Jerry, Ron's standing on the side of the road with one hand on his hip like this, and he's got <laughs> snow built up on his hair and on his arm. <laughs> he was so bad. And so we pull back in there. Teddy says, now tell Ron I did not do that on purpose, which he didn't do. But <laughs> when he drove no. off, when he drove off, I'm looking at Teddy. I thought, I thought he's gonna pull up, you know, a few feet or something. Then then he just drove off. And I, I thought, well, that's not funny. Then I realized Teddy didn't know what he'd done. So when Ron gets in the car, I go, Can you believe Teddy did that? He's been laughing at it. <laughs> oh, he he's he just Jerry, he just straight up buried me immediately. <laughs> Ron, can you believe what he just did? He he drove off and left you purposely. Can you believe? Look at him. Well, Teddy, I got to tell you, nine out of ten people that I know would have never had the balls to put that car in reverse and back up and put uh, a pickup of Ron Simmons that you left in a snowstorm. Well, I mean, you're you're you're, you're that you're, you're that one out of ten people that would actually do that. So that shows you what kind of friend he is, and shows you what kind of person JBL is. You know, you you have an intestinal fortitude to back up getting, and then of course John puts it right on your shoulders. You know, then, yeah. Then he buries me. Just blame yeah. it all on me. <laughs> Kept on calling me an idiot. <laughs> Ron, was, Ron was so mad. Ron wouldn't say nothing. And Ron, you know, Ron doesn't sell anything. And Ron, Ron, nothing. Ron just sitting back there didn't say nothing. I said, "You guys want to pull over and just settle this and fight?" <laughs> you shut up. Yeah. Yeah, he's keep on trying to get Ron to beat me up. I'm like, what are you doing? I just I didn't mean to do it. I didn't know he wasn't in the truck. Yeah. We, we got to the hotel. Teddy checks in his golf. And I said, Can you believe Teddy left me? You're still doing it. Huh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He didn't let up. And then right on the TV the next day. Told everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you got me back by putting me one-on-one -on -one with The Undertaker about 50 different times. Exactly, and that's all I could remember when I was saying one-on-one -on -one with The Undertaker. Yeah, I'm going to get you, you, yeah, now. How about this time? It's your time now. <laughs> <laughs> Teddy, did you come up with that, uh, that, that, or did uh, was that written for you, or did you just, you know, I came part up, of you? I came up with that on my own. Yeah. And the reason I'll tell you how I came up with that is because Vince told me at one time, he says, when you say the names, he said, people like The Undertaker, he said, I want you to put some emphasis on it. You know, make that name mean something. And I always remembered what he told me. And so that's when I would do that one-on-one -on -one with The Undertaker, because I know that's what Vince wanted. 
And so that's that's the idea. I that's what he got. That's one of the most famous lines, catchphrases that ever in the history of our business is is, is that right there. Yeah. People right. people say today, okay, player, I'm gonna put you with the Undertaker. You know, <laughs> you're going tag team with uh, you know whoever. And that and that was the other thing that I came up with about the tag team match. Did nobody write that either? I came up with the tag team match because tag team match meant something. You're going to be in a tag team match, you know, because I always remember that what Vince told me. You know, just that, you know, that's something that guys, you know, that, that you know, that's kind of left in the cold now because everything is so scripted for them. Everything is just, yeah, there's very room for that creativity. But what made made those days were so great, we were, we were told, you know, our guidelines, but we we're also told what to emphasize and, but we weren't told how to do it. We were just told with our natural instincts and guys like you and John, other right. guys would go out there and come up with these things, these emphasis on, on phrases that would that would get over without, you know, pushing anything. Well, and, and to tell y'all the truth, the reason why I helped myself and come up with stuff, because I had seen Vince in action and I did never want to go to one of those come to Jesus meetings with that man. So that's why I said, let me do whatever I'm supposed to do because I do not want to go to Vince with no come to Jesus meeting because I've seen it. We had so much fun. Jerry, you were there. It was so much fun because I, I was the perfect antagonist for Teddy. You know, I was the ultimate heel that that that, that Teddy was always sticking it to, you know, and I yeah. always bitch about Teddy. I'd be on my knees and begging and Teddy would <laughs> Oh, we had so much fun. Yeah. During, during my research, that's one of the classic pictures I see. I think you're tied in a car, torn turnbuckle there or something, laying, laying up, and then Teddy's down in your face. <laughs> Layfield, now you're going to get the Undertaker. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, movie. the first thing I told him, I said, well, I got some good news and I got some bad news. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the bad part is JBL is so dumb that I'm talking about the character in the third person. No, you're not. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm not. So I would, I would always fall for it. I got good news. Oh, good, good, good. Good, good. And then he said bad news. And I'd be on my knees just begging. You know, the six foot six, 280 pound guy <laughs> begging Teddy not to do it to me. Oh, we had so much fun. And that and that made it work because, see, the people saw you begging and so they wanted me to give it to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, I, I don't understand why we don't get that now. You know, why we don't have none of that now. I just, I don't, I really don't understand it. Yeah, the thing was I, I don't either, Teddy. You know, we just look at things and say, you know, well, you know, but you know, even in, in those days when when you guys when we were doing all that stuff, you know, the people said, uh, you know, how are they doing that? You know, I mean, you know, it was just instinct, and I just think the instincts are are slowly disappearing, and we're just slowly turning into uh, whatever whatever the public wants us to be, which is you know not a bad thing, you know, because it's selling the product is selling so well. But uh, it was yeah. so much fun to be creative. It was so much fun to just surprised a guy like JBL with a line because but that was part of it is you're trying to crack JBL up too. I mean inside you you want to you want to break this guy. So yeah. <laughs> and the thing was you know you, you gotta understand a lot of times uh today and even then certain guys not it's not just today guys wanted to be cool. I didn't want to be cool. I wanted to be the heel. I wanted Teddy Long to be cool. I wanted everybody I face to be cool. I want to be the, the, the fool, the dumb guy that gets stuck with, I got some good news. Oh, great, great. And then I got some <laughs> yeah. No, no. Well, 
Well, that made the character. That made people believe because what we did was reality. That's really what what's going on. That what that made them believe. It was great. Jerry, we're in Fresno one time. Fresno or Bakersfield? I get the towns. On oh me. yeah, okay. I know what you're going to tell we're. now. So Teddy gets on the microphone every night. We had the same thing. We we always did different verbiage. We just played you know, whatever happened. Teddy says, "I will not JBL let you make fun of these people in Bakersfield." And people start looking around like, why would he say Bakersfield? And I said, Teddy, we're in, we're in Fresno. We're in Fresno. <laughs> and Teddy can't hear me. So Teddy, Teddy says it again. He goes, these people in Bakersfield, they're not. <laughs> but I grabbed the microphone for him. I said, well, they all look alike. It doesn't matter if it's Fresno or Bakersfield. Well, they started booing me. <laughs> <laughs> Teddy, Teddy forgot. You know, we're in towns every single night. You know how it is, Jerry. <laughs> Jerry and forgot what town we were in. But and that's then, how then, we then, had fun. We improvised. We were given that freedom to improvise, and that that's a fun part of the business. And I, I you know, I, I think people miss that fun part. And they, you know, inside we're having so much fun, but we can't show it until we get backstage, and then we all just just die and laugh. Yeah, everybody, other. everybody now is too serious. Yeah, they don't want to have fun. You know, they take it too serious. They, they it's reality. It's what's going on in your everyday life. So you should enjoy it. They don't know how to enjoy it. The first thing you're told in this business, you know, is, is, is you know, when you're having your match, you know, hey, just slow down. You know, get all that shit out of your mind. Go out there and have fun. But how can you have fun now when you have so much just on your shoulders and these guys have the world of, of, of the company on their shoulders when they're given that mic or given that 15 minutes in a ring they have the weight of the company on their shoulders so it's hard to go out there like we did and just have fun and relax because there's so much weight and pressure on these guys right. well i had a lot of i had a lot of pressure too but it didn't we bother all did, me brother but it didn't bother me because I knew what the man, I knew what the boss wanted. Well, so the that, man that had was... come up to you and put his finger right between your eyes and told you what, what he wanted to do. And you were smart enough to know that you didn't need to be reminded every other night. You know what? You, you know what he, you know what he did to me one night? Then you guys can test this. You know, Vince loves to test you. So you know what he did to me one night? I got ready to walk out. They were playing my music and I was ready to walk out. And he calls me, he says, come here. He says, what are you saying out there tonight? Now I'm thinking to myself, you know what I'm saying. I just gave you the, the paper. You read it, okay? So I told him all over, and he says, Well, I don't want you to say that. Here's what I want you to say. So he changes up everything that I have remembered in my head. He told me to forget about all that, gave me something brand new, and then told me to go. So I'm walking down that ramp and I'm smiling, but in the inside, I'm trying to think, now what did he just say? What did he just say? What did he because I know I can't mess this up. And I will remember just what he told me, but I knew that was my test. And I passed it. Yeah. And that was your pressure. That was your pressure of the night. And, that, you know, that's that's every night. But, you know, it, it's, it's so remarkable that, that we all made it through there with the craziness that was going on backstage with everybody. I mean, we were all crazy there. And, you know, I mean. Uh, you got to we be were, crazy. You got to be crazy to want to do this. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> hey, Betty, well, the, I heard this on in an interview, uh, and I've heard you say it before in person. What was the first thing Vince said to you when you came out as a manager the, for the first time about how did I miss this? Oh, I, I, I walked out with uh, D'Lo Brown, and I cut this promo on Tommy Dreamer. 
And I come back and Vince McMahon stopped me and looked at me and he says, I can't believe I've had you right here under my nose all this time. Wow. That was his words. And I said to him, I said, well, there are a lot of people back there that knew they just didn't tell you. And I walked away. <laughs> Teddy, Teddy, you you have so many memorable moments, but uh, in 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 your mind, what is your favorite, most memorable moment? And when did when did when did it, everything just all of a sudden? Man, I got this. Well, uh, my favorite one was the night that uh, Vince made me general manager of SmackDown. I didn't know anything about it. They kayfabe and didn't tell me nothing until five minutes before we got ready to walk out. And uh, one of the writers came up to me and he says, you know, you're going to be general manager tonight. I said, no, I didn't know that. Nobody told me. And by this time, Vince is out there and he's waiting on me and I walk out. And then we did that for me. That was a memorable moment. But the real good one was the the the, the uh, feud that I had with Undertaker when he had me in the coffin and all that stuff. Well, the night that I was rolling down in the coffin, I could hear the people. And I'm saying to myself in that coffin, I got him. I got him. I said, because they thought it was the undertaker that was in the coffin. And they were just growing and ruining. And I'm saying to myself, I can't wait till they open this and they're going to see it's not undertaker's going to see it's me. And brother, when that happened, I was so <laughs> thrilled. And that really made me get in gear then. I went to work then. And that was one of my memorable moments, man. That I, I loved every minute of that. That's when the gear shifted. That's when the gear shifted. You were all the way in the overdrive. Right. Because I knew when anytime you know that you got them, then yeah. you know what you're doing. And what and a I, feeling. Yeah. Oh, what a feeling, man. Oh, it was great. But it, it, that view with me and The Undertaker was great. I never will forget that. Right. JBL and I talk a lot of times about that, that that white heat, that silent heat there. And it, would you, you're in some moments, I'm sure, where you you just felt that, that that white heat come on you where everything just goes quiet and you just all of a sudden your mind listen to this you know i got them but what the hell do i do now <laughs> yeah, yeah well but you know once you know you got them it's easy to know what you can do next because you're in control uh, <laughs> Teddy, i know how much vince loves you because there's a gif uh gif of me on the internet dancing and how that came about was it was a time you would turn to WWE. You'd been gone for a while or something. And all of a sudden you're the surprise announcement coming down. And, you know, I knew you were coming, but I'd seen you backstage. But Vince gets in my ear. He goes, go dance with him. And because he, he loved your dance and he loved you. And so I get up and do this dance. Ah, it's Teddy Long. That's the gift now on the Internet. But it all came from Vince. When you come down, the big ad lib is get up and go dance with Teddy hey. Long. I'll tell you another good story, too. I uh, <laughs> One night, I got ready to go out and it was Taker down there. And so I was going to go down to do this promo with Taker. And so Vince tells me, says, when you get down there, we're going to play your music. You make Taker dance with you. Get him to dance with you. <laughs> so I'm saying to myself, nah, I know this yeah. ain't going to So I get down there to the ring. And so they play the music. And I look up at Taker and I said, it ain't me. It ain't me. I said, Vince told me to get you to dance. He's <laughs> I'm not fucking doing it. <laughs> so I didn't nothing I could do, but Vince knew he wasn't going to do it. So Vince was just dying laughing when I come back, man. It was so funny. Yeah, he told me to get taken to dance with me. 
<laughs> and he take a look right at me. He said, "No, I know Vince told you. Uh-uh, I'm not doing it." <laughs> Vince was on a mission for years to get Taker to break character. He used me. He used Booker T. He used you. He constantly spent a Rooney's, you know, all oh, that stuff. He said yeah, they're yeah. trying to get Taker to do a spin a Rooney that night's a classic too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun, Teddy. Uh, tell us what you're doing now. Uh, well, I'm uh, running a company in Texas. It's called uh, SWE Fury. I'm there with some people I know you know, Bradshaw, and I'm pretty sure Jerry knows, uh, James Beard. Good uh, friend. Good there yeah. in the Texas area for a long time. Uh, Tom Lance, he's one of the owners there. And uh, we, we, we're doing really good. Uh, we're, we're selling out. We're on the CW. We're in about 30 million homes. You and just brought my a- son in, too, by the way. Well, yeah, we we brought him in, and uh, he, he he was at our last TV that we had in Irving, Texas, and uh, done a great job. And we're looking forward to working with him a lot more because we got Charlie Haas. Charlie Haas is our world heavyweight champion, and my thing I thought would be great for for Wes to come in and work with Charlie. You know what I mean? So right. Wes has done a good job. He first come in, so we just waiting. You know, looking forward to working with him. But well, he's so uh, excited. He's so excited about you being there. You know, I mean, you you met him along the years. You know, since he was a puppy there, and he said oh, when yeah. he first when he first got invited down there, he called me. He said, "Dad, I'm such Teddy Long," and I said, "You know." You don't need to say anything else. I said, you know, I tell tell my brother hello for me. So he's he's so excited to be there. So, man, I wish you so much luck. And and uh, and James Beard, yeah, I mean uh, that guy sitting up there uh, above you there, right next to me, had a lot to do with 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 JBL and teaching JBL some manners. If anybody could ever do it, <laughs> James Beard could do it. So uh, James well, Beard really helped us out in controlling that wild Texan guy. Right. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. James is a great guy. And Tom Lance, you know, he's been, you know, really an outstanding guy, too, man. You know, he's gave me, you know, a lot of lead way and, you know, let me, you know, kind of, you know, run things and don't bother me, you know, kind of like my own boss. And also, you know, we got Kevin Sullivan. Kevin is there. He's uh, on our writing team. And plus, he's doing color commentary. So we're just doing great. And we're just happy, you know, to, you know, to be doing what we're doing, you know, because a lot of indie, you know, organizations, they don't make it. And I'm not blowing my own horn, but since I went in and started working with those guys, you know, I really turned things around and they're happy and I'm happy. And we just, you know, trying to do what we do. You're interested in credibility in any company you're associated with, Teddy. And I I mean that. Yeah. And Teddy, look, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show. But most importantly, I want to thank you for uh, years and years of friendship, man. I I love you. You're my friend. And I am so honored that uh, you not only came on the show. I'm honored about that. Happy about that. It's very excited for you to come on. But more importantly, that you're my friend and going to be for life. So, man, thank you, my brother. I love you. Thank you for coming on our show tonight. Hey, well, I thank you for having me. And before I go, John, I want to thank you for all the stuff that you're doing for all the people in Zimbabwe and all the, you, you, you know, all those kids over there that, uh, you know, don't have food to eat or, you know, just don't have the necessities that we have here in the United States. And for you to take out your time and go over there and try to help those kids. And what you are doing in Memphis, Tennessee, too? You're doing a lot there. And so just for you to be able to give back, because there are so many people that are in your position that are able to give back. And they won't. And for you, I was surprised to see, you know, when you started doing it, I'm like, Jesus, that is absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for going back and, and you know, and not forgetting about people. Thank you. And thank you again for having me on the show. And uh, as soon as we get off here, I'll let you know where you can send my check. 
<laughs> like I said, this for entertainment purposes only, Teddy. Well, that's what we're saying on the air. Once this goes, I'm going to have a talk with him. Teddy, in all seriousness, send that check to Briscoe Brothers Body Shop. They'll pay you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>